0: Welcome to the Conscious Combat Club, trauma informed martial arts by women for women. I'm your host, Georgia, and I cannot wait to go on this journey with you. Please note that some listeners might find this content distressing. Take care, connect with your support networks, and refer to the organizations in the show notes below. Welcome back to our new segment, Fight Science. Fight Science is an episode format in which we will be having authors of peer-reviewed papers about martial arts and combat sports explain their paper in lay terms that you will be able to understand. And you'll get so much more out of listening to these um, episodes than you could even from reading beyond the abstract and getting into the paper itself, although we've dropped that into the show notes below if you want to check out this specific paper. These episodes are our attempt to contribute towards bridging the gap between research and practice. And today we welcome back Alex Channon. Dr. Alex Channon is a researcher and the course leader at Brighton University for the Bachelor of Sport Management and the Bachelor of Sport Studies. And Alex's research has covered Broad, A broad variety of topics related to martial arts and combat sports, including gender, sexuality, the media, violence, consent, which we have already covered on this show. Go back and check out the first edition of Fight Science to learn more about that. And today we are going to be talking about myths. Specifically, the paper is titled Boxing, Myths and Reality. Building in Sport Development Programs. All right. So, Alex, can you please explain this paper as if it's to a 14-year-old? And I'm going to start you off a 14-year-old who doesn't do a martial art.
1: Okay, yes. So this paper is about how um, different boxing clubs, different coaches might use their sport as a way to uh, sort of help young people to to grapple with not just becoming better at sports, but, but to solve other problems in their lives. So we, we're talking about things like, um, you know, 14 year olds will, will very much be aware of all this because they'll be getting it at school. Things like, you know, saying no to drugs or, uh, you know, how to avoid violent situations. Um, there are other examples where coaches are using sports in general, but, but boxing in particular as well for things like sexual health education. So, they're using sport as a way to, to sort of get young people interested in learning something mm-hmm. positive and, 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 you know, getting a positive message across to um, the communities they work in, not only with young people, but usually these, these things are targeting, um, yeah, children, teenagers and, and young adults. So it's all about using boxing in this case to do some kind of social good work. That's, that's kind of the, uh, the main um, focus of these projects. And what our paper is about, Uh, Because there's a lot of research about this, about this field generally. But what our paper is focusing on is the the beliefs that coaches and other people that work on on delivering these programs, the beliefs that they hold about boxing and about its power to, you know, to help to change people's lives and to do all these good works. Um, And we're actually taking a fairly critical look at those beliefs in that uh, we're asking you know what what kind of evidence do people use to support those beliefs and quite often the evidence they use is not particularly scientific it's not particularly strong evidence um, and we say when well, that that can be a bit of a problem because a lot of the time we we assume that something really good will happen when we create a boxing program get young people in do boxing with them and suddenly they, they'll, they'll never take drugs and they'll never, they'll never be violent and they'll be really positive because we believe that sport has this magical almost ability to do these, these things that helps to transform people's lives and so on, because we have that belief, it sometimes gets in the way of doing more careful research on exactly how boxing might help people. And, you know, is it just boxing that we need to do or is it boxing in a specific way? Is it boxing plus social work? Is it boxing plus other things to help people to, you know, to, to to have these kind of positive outcomes. So that's what the paper is looking at, is the beliefs that people bring into these programs, and how they sometimes um, maybe are a little bit too optimistic.
0: And are those myths, like, um, directly related? So is the myth something that like, people think that boxing makes kids stop taking drugs? Or is it more indirect like boxing makes kids have more respect and discipline and that makes them say no to drugs.
1: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, the say no to drugs thing is its just one example of, of yeah. many things that we might apply this to. Uh, but certainly, as you say, yes, there is this very sort of widespread belief, I think, in martial arts, combat sports circles that doing these activities will teach you discipline, it will make you respectful, hmm. it will sort of make you a better person generally. Um, I've encountered some, you know, I say some, quite a lot of people actually in the martial arts world who are themselves quite skeptical about this, particularly, um, instructors and coaches who've worked with children for a long period of time, whose, whose parents expect them to be completely transformed by taking two lessons of karate a week. You know, and like, "Why, why isn't my kid perfect suddenly, you know, come on, it's more than just this. So there is some, some sort of skepticism about this, but generally I think people that practice these things, they tend to have quite a positive view of them. And they tend to believe, yeah, that if we do, in this case, boxing, um, it it is a sport that imparts discipline. And because that happens, therefore, other things must also, you know, be be able to happen. And I think it's really important to stress right from the start of this this chat that in this paper, we're not saying this doesn't happen. We're not saying it's complete rubbish. Um, You know, when we use the word myth, that doesn't mean it's a lie. You know, these things do happen. They can happen. Um, but what we're talking about here is that the positive outcomes become a myth, they become mythologized, they become part of this sort of uncritical belief system that exists in the sport. So we don't ask exactly how boxing might teach someone discipline, you know, under what conditions might it make someone more respectful? Um, you know, what specifically needs to happen in terms of the gym culture, the coaching methods, you know, the extent of competitiveness, the amount of um you know, education the coach has about safeguarding and all of these other factors, we don't consider those because, well, it's boxing, and boxing by itself is sufficient to achieve, you know, all these wonderful outcomes. So it's, mm. it's mythologizing of, of that possibility that becomes a problem because it stops us from thinking about, um, you know, the, the more intricate ways in which these sports can have a positive effect.
0: Mm. Do you think that there could be some positive from really believing the myth in that they become self-fulfilling prophecies. So that if the coach really believes um, maybe blindly that by going through this program, it's going to develop respect and discipline, then that is, is a more positive thing than having a more open mind because because they believe it then it will become true because they'll look for evidence and that will shift their focus. Is is that something that's possible to tease out or what do you think about that?
1: So I think if if you believe that boxing creates an environment where people can learn respect and discipline, let's just stick with those two things. Yeah. Of all of the things that we could do. Um and, and you believe that and you work towards that and you, you operate your club on those values and you, you tell people that and you constantly stress it and put it in front of them. Then it's not just boxing, is it? it it's boxing with an environment that, that emphasises the importance of discipline and respect, mm-hmm. which is not blind faith. Then it, it becomes a practical implementation of that belief. So uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, the, believing it and chasing it and, and um, aiming for that in our in our coaching practice, um, perhaps that's that's better than simply not, or, or, you know, being just really sceptical and, and having no particular ambition to do anything but boxing. Um, but it's it's when people believe that it's happening, by the way, we don't have to do anything towards those ends. That's when we would be quite, you know, quite critical of this, that um, the research literature that we have on boxing it on, on its own suggests we do have some positive outcomes for young people, you know, in terms of social, psychological variables, you know, lower levels of aggression, Uh, increased levels of sociality and so on but we also have research that shows increased levels of aggression or um, actually increased um, criminal recidivism right so going back to crime so it's not boxing is not a silver bullet on its own it has to be done in a way that that accomplishes these goals so if you were a coach who who wholeheartedly believed this and put it into your practice purposefully that's great um, if you're a coach that you know, might just sort of make that sort of as a throwaway aside. Oh, yeah, boxing teaches discipline. Of course, it does. But then you don't actually try to encourage that. You don't try to address any any problems with with club members not respecting each other and so on. Then, yeah, then that's for us. That's where it's, it's problematic. It's just faith. It's not action.
0: Yes, really, really interesting. Would you add anything to that explanation? I would say it's already pretty high level. um, But if you, we started talking about explaining it to a 14-year-old, if you were explaining it to an adult who has experience in martial arts, would you add anything to that summary?
1: I I would really emphasise that practice element of it. Yeah, I think I probably went above the 14-year-old, a little bit there, but (laughs) sure. Um, You know, we're talking to people who practice martial arts, um, who've got a bit of experience in this, um, especially people that have been at different gyms you know think about the, the culture in different gyms that you might have trained at mm-hmm. it might be that they're very similar um if you've moved around a little bit and you've done different martial arts perhaps different combat sports even the same sport but in different settings you probably would have seen a difference um so you know just from from personal experience the gym i currently train at quite a different cultural atmosphere to, to when i trained at when i was at university for instance um mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, very, very, you know, much sort of respectful and a strong sense of equality as well in terms of gender. And that's a different topic, but we can we can circle back to perhaps. But the, the cultural atmosphere that exists in different gyms, and that all comes from, you know, the coaching ethos. It comes from perhaps the, the makeup of the membership, but it comes from what the coaches get you to do, what kinds of banter they'll tolerate and where the lines get drawn with, with um, you know, when people push things a little bit. So this is all about, actual practice so what do coaches and senior members of clubs do in these spaces to try and bring about these kinds of outcomes and in in the context of this paper just to come back to the research Mm. we're not talking about just regular boxing training we're talking about purposefully using boxing to to work towards these goals if we're just doing that in a way that is we've got some money you know we've got a space we've got a coach here you go you know do it do a 10-week boxing program. And all that gets done is just, you know, intro to boxing fundamentals, you know, footwork, maybe a little bit of, you know, text sparring at the end. If, if that's all that happens, you know, we're going to have very different outcomes to, okay, we've got this space, we've got boxing coaches, but we've also got people who are who are social workers who are who are part of the team, um, and you know, we're doing the boxing sessions, we're doing all that fun stuff, um, you know, all the all the positive mental and physical aspects of exercise. But also we've got counsellors who are here to talk to these these young people who, you know, might need specific support or they might need general support. We've created a welcoming space that they can hang out in after school. They don't just come in a box. They come here to just hang out. So it becomes this like this haven. So two very different types of practice. If you see what I mean, and then and that's where I would say yes. we need, this conversation moves. It's not just about the, the ideas; that's important, but those ideas lead us to behave in different ways, and, and that's where I think the um, yeah, sort of the crux of the issue lies. What do we actually do in practice?
0: Yeah, what did you do in order to understand this topic better? I suppose I'm essentially asking what were the methods in lay terms.
1: Yeah, so the, the methods um, for any piece of academic research, you'd, you'd always start with reading what's out there, reading the literature, mm-hmm. the academic literature. Um, so for this, um, we this was a research team. It wasn't just myself. It was myself, Christopher Matthews, um, and then uh, Ashley and, and uh, Tom as well, the, the research assistants who work with this. So a lot of research in terms of looking at what do we know about sport for development generally in a, in a broad theoretical sense. Um, looking at as well uh, this is the kind of stuff that I'm more familiar with, the sort of combat sports culture, um, doing a very like you know broad sort of survey of what the existing research tells us about what happens in boxing programs. So you start with that. That gives you a sense of what we do know. It also gives you a sense of what we don't know. And that helps you to generate your research question. And then from there, you think, well, what's the best way to answer this question? So the thing that we wanted to find out specifically in this uh, piece of research was, what kind of evidence do coaches gather to support or to to show their programs are, are working or, or, or aren't? You know, how are they evaluated effectively? Um, and on the basis of that evidence, what do they believe about their work? So this paper focused on the belief side of things. The, the larger project was, um, yeah, we will probably publish some more stuff off that later on about, you know, the evidence practices and so on. But um, so we, we uh, gathered data by doing a, a large survey and then by um, doing uh, interviews with a few people who uh, whose responses were particularly uh, pertinent. So, uh, yeah, I can't take too much credit for this. I didn't do the, the data gathering on this paper. I'll just put that as a disclaimer. Yes. I was part of the research team, uh, but it was the, the guys at Nottingham Trent that did the, uh, the the data gathering on this one.
0: Yeah, 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 of course. Um, and I'm super interested for the, the new stuff to come out because I was wondering as you were talking, like we had some sneak peeks. Um, because one of the the themes through the paper that I noticed was this idea around, you know it might not be possible um, to collect sort of like more empirical or highest quality um, data. And also it might not be desirable because that's not necessarily what the funders are wanting. They kind of want like the case studies or like the the stories which are great in of themselves, but are maybe not exactly the exact same thing as collecting good quality research so what might that look like if somebody was running one of these programs and they did a really good job at collecting research
1: yeah I mean that, that's the million dollar question really in in sport for development as a, as a field the, the field is is very much um, the academic field of sport development studies effectively is it grapples with this for a long time and then the kind of thing that we're advocating a lot of our colleagues actually saying you know we we've We've been trying this for too long, and it's just not working. Um, this kind of before and after—you know—how how does this variable change across time? There are lots of problems with that because you build those kind of studies around assumptions that researchers bring to these programs. That you know, boxing will have an impact on this variable or that variable. Um, mm-hmm. Can we be certain that we that we're actually measuring how disciplined a person is? I mean, how do you do that, right? You know, yeah. is, is there a, a you know a thing that you can put under a microscope? You know, it's something that you have to rely on, um, you know, questionnaires and and, and sort of qu- trying to quantify something that's very subjective and very difficult to measure. So mm-hmm. it's very difficult, actually, to get scientifically robust data on the kinds of things that we're looking at here. Some of the ways that we might do this, you know, if we're thinking about um, school based research. And this is something I actually I come into PhD study recently that was looking at judo in schools used mm-hmm. to, to um, tackle antisocial behaviour in schools, um, a judo-based programme. And some of the data that was available was around school exclusion rates. So, uh, you know, another sort of, you know, um, formal uh, disciplinary procedures in schools. And they could show, in a, you know, in a fairly clear objective sense that there was fewer of these things happening after the intervention. So that doesn't necessarily show you that the children have become less violent or more disciplined, but it yeah. does show you something has changed in terms of the outcomes so you know we we can get this kind of you know objective data but it's it's always only telling us a bit of the picture um so it's quite frustrating as a as a scientist and you know as a researcher to want to get this kind of you you want to prove it right does boxing make you more disciplined does martial arts improve people's lives it's very difficult to prove that in a in a um you know in a quantified positivist empirical sense What we can do um, is with the kind of qualitative methodology that we've used in this study as well, we can show what people think about the the transformations, um, which there's tons of research that that does this. um, You know, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in probably in a later episode on some of my stuff on on gender, which adopts that kind of method to look at Mm -hmm. the impact of martial arts training on women. Um, so we can do that. We can capture people's stories, their, their narratives, and we can show that, that it's had an impact on individual people. From that, we can say, well, it can have these kinds of impacts, you know, when these kind of conditions are being met. So we're always kind of skirting around. We're, we're not able to pinpoint and say really precisely with definitive confidence that that, you know, doing this sport in this way will always lead to this outcome. So that's mm-hmm. why we're, with this paper, we're, we're kind of throwing you know, a bit of a cat amongst the pigeons for people who are the, the sort of true believers that, you know, oh yeah, boxing will save lives. I mean, it might it might have saved your life. It might help in some respects, but we can never be 100% sure. And the, what's currently going on in terms of what's being measured, um, which I think circles back to the question you actually asked, is very, very far from anything that I've just described. You know, it, it's really just, let's just have one or two anecdotal case studies that are not done in an academic way it's just a couple of testimonials from from you know kids who have been helped by the program. That's enough to, have to make the funders happy, um, they yes. can put that on their little press releases. You know, look at this thing we're funding, aren't we great? Here's some more money to keep doing it, and and it's it's kind of a virtuous cycle in that respect. But it all depends on um, you know sort of less less than perfect evidence. Uh, that's a very long rambling answer. Um, hopefully, I've addressed what you wanted to do there.
0: No, I like it. I think and it speaks to a lot of elements about this paper um, that I think are really important for people to understand. And what keeps coming into my head is a question that I I do often get asked, which is, um, which is the best martial art for trauma survivors to practice, which is kind of, you know, like the broad version of, you know, which is the best martial art to practice via mental health or you know, in terms of sport development programs, well, which is the best martial art then in order to achieve that? Um, And the answer really often is, well, it depends who's teaching it Um, because two different kickboxing coaches, one might be, you know, very, you could say, trauma-informed, you know, or one might have a very different coaching style than um, another one. And then also individual differences where I think boxing for example, really speaks to some people and then for other people, they're a bit turned off by boxing or for for a million other reasons, they prefer a grappling sport like judo, which feels more nonviolent or a million reasons why people pick different sports. So from a sport development program perspective, how do you how do you pick which martial art it even uh, like should should be? and I don't know if we'll ever have an answer to that. What do you think?
1: That that is a really good question. I think we we can we can kind of get a, a bit more or a, a bit closer to an answer with this one. In that um, you've got to ask who, who your audience is. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a group that, um, that I've been doing a little bit of work with. Me and my colleagues done a little bit of work with uh, called Fight for Peace, which you might have heard of them. They they've been running for quite a while. Um, they've got a base in London. They they started in Rio. Um, mm-hmm. and I think they do, they do some work. I think in Jamaica as well they do. Fairly, fairly well-established, and they've been running in London for, uh, I think, a good 10 years now. Um, and for them, it, it, boxing is the main thing in, in you know, uh, I think it's East London. Um, you know, we're dealing with kids who are, um, you know, sort of culturally, in terms of the, the the local, the national and the local context, boxing is a sport that they can relate to quite easily. Um, it, it, mm-hmm. it fits with, um, you know, boxing's cool. It's fun. It's something that they, they have role models that do box. Uh, and that kind of thing so if you were to roll into town in you know exact same space exact same kids exact same expertise you know and then this this program by the way just as a, a little side note is is very good they do a lot of the social work stuff that i mentioned before they're really really um you know very very good at that and they they have a very strong um orientation towards evidence based and everything so they they they're doing a good job um, and <laughs> so, so speak. if that same practice was happening and and it was um aikido for instance, mm-hmm. it's not going to have the same draw for the kids that they're, they're working with because it doesn't have the same sort of cultural capital, to use that, that term. It doesn't resonate with how people see themselves. It doesn't carry the same kind of status. So boxing works because that's what the, the target audience wants. In a different setting, um, so in the Netherlands, for instance, kickboxing is, is, a, is a huge sport you know you'll know about Dutch kickboxers and how uh, they've got this fantastic reputation so kickboxing would be a good choice and actually speaking to the the coaches at that program at Fight for Peace um, all the kids now they want to do MMA they're all asking about oh can we have MMA classes you know can we do jiu-jitsu and everything so because of this cultural sort of um, movement they they're tapping into that so it doesn't really matter what the sport is because the sport isn't the point the point is to give something positive to a community and to use young people's enthusiasm for sport as a vehicle for, you know, addressing these kind of, you know, their needs and and hopefully uh, helping them um, in various ways. Um, But thinking about what will get them through the door, you know, what's going to get them enthusiastic, um, that's a really important start. And that goes for all sport for development programmes, you know.
0: Does it matter that they are combat sports? Is that important that there is a possibility that what you're learning has applications in self-defence?
1: I I think it does. And that's, again, that's a question that, um, it can be quite loaded depending on who's asking it, (laughs) you know, and I I know that, 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 you know, as a martial artist and coach and practitioner yourself, um, you know, you, you wouldn't be asking it with respect to thinking that it might lead to more violence, but there are other people that would ask that question with that in mind, you know, should we be teaching kids how to hurt each other? You know, if our end goal is to try and improve their lives and make them more respectful and so on. Um, again it, it comes back to how you do it and you know you made this point quite well it depends what the coach actually teaches you know are they are they yeah. teaching you um techniques of, of fighting and, and and just leaving it that or are they, are they also teaching you some kind of ethical philosophy around this which they might not say it's an ethical philosophy but generally speaking boxing coaches do do a fairly good job at this you know it, this is for the ring you know this is the the limits of what we do and this is why we do it and, and all that. So it's not just how to fight, it's also kind of why and um, contextualizing violence that way. So, this is something else that I've, I've spent a bit of time working on with uh, Christopher, my co author, on, on this paper uh, is thinking about how we can use combat sports as a vehicle specifically for teaching um, anti violence, um, particularly for teaching about consent uh, and mutual respect because the nature of the activity involves something that comes quite close to violence punching and kicking each other and throwing each other and so on mm. we have to think about that question we have to have a way to to understand you know because we don't we don't do this intending to hurt each other we don't do this out of violent intentions or hostile intentions and um, we do this actually in a way that's very supportive and we you know, if I'm if I'm going to box, I need someone to box with me. You know, we're, we're collaborating when we box. So we know all this by, by doing it. Um, and we can use that knowledge that there's a difference between the punching in the boxing ring and, and punching on the street. We can use that, that implicit knowledge that we get in these settings as a vehicle to help young people reflect on, well, what is violence anyway? Right. Mm-hmm. I want you to punch me in the boxing ring. Right. This is mutually supportive. We're collaborating. We're helping each other. I don't want you to punch me outside right that's a violation so let's think about what violations are what other kind of violations are there how do we know that someone isn't being violated well we consent okay so what does consent feel like so actually the fact that these activities involve physical combat can be a really fantastic resource for doing this kind of work This isn't something we address in this paper uh, it's something that i've written about elsewhere but um you know, the, the, the possibility for using combat-based activities to teach positive values, I think, gives us some really unique opportunities, which um, I think if coaches are sensitive to that, then again, it comes back to their practice. If they actually put those into practice and use them um, to those opportunities, to you know, to meet those opportunities, then, yeah, there's, there's, there's some good possibility there.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of another theme um, that I pulled from the paper, which was that uh, a lot of the interviewees Uh, were actually doing an element of that kind of like circle time or discussion around the work that they were doing. So even though the myth that was maybe being perpetuated was that it was the boxing that was causing these changes, they actually were already, you know, like taking some period of time within a session to talk about broader themes related to some of those outcomes that were being achieved. And, of course, because the research hasn't been done to be able to extrapolate what exactly it is. You can't say it's just the boxing, but then the, the idea that was being put forward was it's because they're doing boxing, but how do we know it's not? Because they're also having these conversations alongside that.
1: Totally, totally. And that's, again, this is the idea that sport is a, is a kind of a hook that brings young people in. So what do you do with mm. them when they're in? And if you, you know, some of the, the interviewees were, you know, at pains to tell us about this, that we, we aren't just boxing coaches, we're not just boxing practitioners. And it's it's kind of unsurprising that those are the ones that agree to interview, you know, <laughs> the ones that wanna want to tell us about all the extra good that they do. Um which is kind of a, like a, it's always a methodological bias in this field when you rely on on you know the kind of the goodwill of people taking part in research. You know, you, you generally tend to get people who who've got something that they want to share with you that they think is positive and you know in this case, you know, reasonably good. Um anyway, slightly slightly d- distracted on that one. But yes. The, the use of of the boxing environment to bring kids in and then you know while you've got them in that space to do positive you know constructive youth work with them that isn't it doesn't feel like a classroom it doesn't feel like you're being you know hauled in front of the head teacher to be lectured about you know whatever it is that, that the issue is you're in a space that you love probably you know if they, they keep coming you're in a space that, that you feel safe you um, for a lot of young people as well, who who really find themselves in sport, it might be that in the school environment they they maybe feel like a bit of an outsider. They don't quite fit in there. In sport, it's different. So, you know, when those opportunities are are used properly, you know, we would suggest you're more likely to see positive outcomes. Um, but yes, it doesn't doesn't really stop people from still believing that it's just the sport that does it magically. You know, <laughs> if you just if you just lace up the gloves, you will become a better person. No, it's all the stuff that goes around that's that's what where the magic happens.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So if I'm a coach, I'm listening to this. So far, I've essentially taken in um it might be handy to take some time to reflect on what I believe about whichever combat sport it is that I teach. Is that founded in evidence? Is that founded in um myth um and just to be a little bit thoughtful I think that's the point of this paper really is a critique to be like well you know what what are we assuming as being real and can we actually do that um two questions one is this idea kind of um transposable to the rest of the world since it's a UK based study if I'm in Australia or if I'm in brazil are these ideas kind of um universal do you think and then to follow on from that is there any practical takeaway that you would give to coaches or any piece of homework um related to this paper
1: yeah so in terms of the generalizability question um i can't say with with sort of academic you know confidence because we haven't done the research but um as someone who who sort of existed in this this field for a while i think yes i think you see the same sort of practice the same sort of stories some examples of really really good practice really reflective and evidence-based and you know constantly evolving and adjusting to new new conditions and so on you see these kind of programs um you also see that the sort of it will happen by magic programs as well so i think that the ideas are are, are broadly sort of general to, to sport i think it's fair to mm-hmm. say Um, The exact narratives, of course, aren't, but the the general thrust of the analysis, I'd be reasonably confident that this would fit with other contexts. Um, In terms of the sort of the practical takeaways, you know, this is a a paper that that offers more criticism than it does um, sort of (laughs) solid advice, uh, which is, you know, part of the the project. Sometimes that's the way it goes. Um, I think, you know, take seriously the, the need to evaluate what you're doing. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to get a bunch of scientists in and do whole, you know, before and after research projects and, you know, all of that sort of malarkey. It's very resource intensive and, and not something that's easily easily managed. Um, but don't just sort of rest on your laurels and think that whatever happened and whatever worked for you will work for everyone. And this is, again, this is a critique that goes beyond boxing to all of sports, really. We tend to have this um, this phenomenon that we call survivor bias. So if you start in... in a sport as a child, you enjoy it, you carry on, you're good at it, you have fun, you make friends in that sport. Maybe you take it as a career, you know, you're very much a survivor, you know, to say, so to speak, of that system. That system has worked very well for you. Then you get to a point of where you're coaching and you're developing, or you're a PE teacher or whatever it is that you're doing, and you're imparting that same system back to young people. There's something inherently quite conservative about that, where we're not necessarily being open to new ideas. We're not adjusting to new circumstances. If we, um, you know, if we learn our our craft, we learn a sport in one part of our country, and we move to a very different part. You know, is that context going to work? You know, we talk about different generations. Uh, you know, of young kids, is the same thing that worked for you necessarily going to work now here? So I think be reflective about your own experiences and the the limitations of um, of what that's shown you. And don't just focus on the positive stories of those kids that, like you, enjoy it and make it and and come good. Think about what happens to those that that don't stick around. You know, what can you do to enhance the experience for those kids that come for a couple of sessions and they just sort of drift away? You you know, you've lost them and that they might benefit from the potential that boxing or or other combat sports has to improve people's lives. They might be... um, you know, the, the next case study that you'd use to the funder to get, you, to get your funding, if you can adjust your programme and, and make it suitable for them. So I think it's kind of a case of being open-minded and, and not um, not just sort of living in this, this mythologised world where boxing is fine as it is and we don't need to think about or, or, or work on um, you know, reaching these kind of other, other goals.
0: Thank you for being part of the club. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to get in touch, please refer to the information in the show notes. If you'd like to support this podcast, please consider leaving us a review or subscribing on whichever platforms you use to listen or watch the podcast. The Conscious Combat Club acknowledges the traditional owners of the lands in which we work, live and play. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. We'd like to say thank you to Nari for the beautiful song, Shape Me, heard at the beginning and end of every episode. Me. If you'd like to connect with Nari, you
2: can find her on Instagram, at Nari the Don't gotta tell you what my name is, I don't gotta explain it. Walk in the room, hear a boom erupting like I'm famous. I'm here shedding shells, I'm shameless. I fear nothing, no complacence. Walk to many tight ropes with no hope. So I became this poster. They hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history. I move boulders. Atlas shrugged because I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense. Move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment because huh, I'm the one that power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience, meets power, meets gracious meets we're so glad you came in the feeling is contagious when you the walking impact of intended bad intentions when you the manifesting of collecting all their tensions you the soul and body hold it all and still remember but i'm a work in progress testament to all contenders forgot what it was like to have control over self forgot what it was like to be the one in charge forgot in my reflection i could see all my wealth forgot that with my bare hands i break all these bars barriers and obstacles they can't cage me they Can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances. When I was truly beaten, gave myself clearances to fall down, mess up, and get myself back up. I'm not looking for clovers, cause I don't believe in luck. Damn, you were badass, I heard them say it clearly. Why, thank you very much. I know now I'm not weary of what's next for me, cause I expect to see. Growth, like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be the positivity and accountability. Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency. I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin. Boundaries, I know them well. Take a breath and meditate. Who is she? I know her well. Now I get to open gates. One, two, one, two. I don't need your permission. And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition to know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing. And everything I do, that's me making decisions. It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth. Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth. A penny for my thoughts, no reason. Really, you can't afford it, you cannot buy my story, rewrite it, whole record it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, whole record it, hold.